Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, and in this episode, supported by Oxford Nanopore, I'll be looking into epigenetics, particularly DNA methylation, the techniques involved in the study of these modifications, and the role that epigenetics plays in infectious diseases and cancer. For those who are less familiar or perhaps a little rusty, we'll give a quick overview of epigenetics at the beginning of the episode. Coming up, we discuss the new technologies that are heating up the field of DNA methylation. So there, I guess the the two main ones, there are other ones, but these are sort of the the traditional method and then the new, the the sexy method that (laughs) people are getting into. And the power that they hold for delivering extraordinary sequencing results. With long read sequencing, there are several techniques where you can essentially have potentially no upper limit on read length. Some researchers have actually sequenced an entire chromosome from end to end using long read sequencing approaches. So it's very exciting space, I guess, to be in. Before exploring the role that epigenetics can play in infectious diseases and later cancer. I guess the third way is some viruses have their own epigenetic regulation. It's kind of crazy to think that a virus can have genes that can potentially be epigenetically activated or repressed, whether that be after getting incorporated into the host genome or, for example, hepatitis B virus. It forms its own sort of like mini chromosome that is in the nucleus. My guest today is Chloe Goldsmith, postdoctoral research fellow at Canberra University. Chloe, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Chloe, I think the simplest explanation I could find of epigenetics sort of describes it as the collection of chemical and physical, so chemical modifications, physical conformational changes that can be made to DNA that essentially impact gene expression, and that these changes can be influenced by an individual's environment or their experiences. Can you give us a brief overview of the different types of epigenetic regulation and also just chime in on whether that is actually an accurate uh, description? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great description. I guess I usually like to take a step back when I explain epigenetics to try and make people think about what makes our cells different from each other. Essentially, every cell in our body has the same genetic code, but the cells in our skin are very different to the cells in our brains, the cells in our liver. And the thing that makes them different, even though they have the same essentially instructions, is epigenetics. And so it's everything on top of the DNA sequence that makes our cells unique. And this is, when you think about it, it's really a huge, huge area. But the three main types of epigenetic regulation that people usually think about when they talk about epigenetics, the first one is DNA methylation. So this is the modification of DNA bases. So for example, cytosines, they can be methylated or hydroxymethylated. When it occurs in CPG islands, methylation is usually negatively correlated with gene expression. But if you look at other modified bases like hydroxymethylation, if this is in gene bodies, for example, it's, it's a marker of active genes. Another type of epigenetic regulation is histone modifications. So your DNA is wrapped around proteins called histones, and they have these little or like it's not so little sometimes, they have these tails, and tails can have markers on them that are permissive or repressive, so opening or closing the chromatin. The third type of epigenetic regulation that people usually think about is non-coding RNAs. So Non-coding RNAs can affect gene expression by forming heterochromatin or by triggering other modifications like histone modifications or DNA methylation. So these are the three, like I said, the three main systems that usually come to mind when people talk about epigenetic regulation. 
Perfect. And so you mentioned with the methylation aspect, there's the CPG islands that it takes place on. Is that sequences where you get a, a C followed by a G base on repeat? Exactly so. right. Exactly right. Yeah. So a cytosine connected to a guanine. So it's C and a G. Perfect. And so you mostly, I believe, work with DNA methylation side of things, or that's your main focus within the epigenetic realm. What kind of techniques are used to explore DNA methylation? Yeah, that's that's exactly exactly right. I, I like to work with DNA methylation. There are several techniques that are traditionally used. A lot of them rely on sodium bisulfite conversion. So this is when you chemically treat the DNA to convert unmethylated cytosines into uracilothiamine. And so then we use sequencing techniques like arrays or sequencing essentially to determine the difference. So we're indirectly measuring the methylation. There are now long-read sequencing approaches that don't rely on sodium bisulfite conversion. So these include things like PacBio or in particular nanopore sequencing. And so for this technique, you pass DNA through a biological pore that sits in an electrical membrane. And so as the you know, individual bases or combination of bases pass through the protein pore, you can measure the change in electrical resistance. And so importantly, if a base is methylated or not, we can also see a change in the electrical resistance. So we're measuring it sort of directly on the DNA. So there, I guess the, the two main ones, there are other ones, but these are sort of the, the traditional method and then the new, the, the sexy method that <laughs> people are getting into. Okay. And so with the, the bisulfate conversion, it's that the, so the unmethylated cytosines get converted into a uracil and then it's exactly, that, yeah. that that's picked up and you can see that, okay, that's not been methylated and ones that remain as Cs. Exactly. And so what are some of the challenges of that technique? Because you're sort of fundamentally changing the base sequence. So does that have any kind of issues that come with it? It does, yeah. Like with any technique, there are, of course, limitations. But with sodium bisulfite in particular, a huge problem arises where, with incomplete bisulfite conversion. So if you don't convert every single cytosine that's unmodified, then you'll think you have methylation where you don't have methylation when you ultimately read that. So that, that's a big challenge. Another limitation of sodium bisulfite is that it degrades the DNA. So when we combine it with things like short read sequencing, it can cause some other issues there. Another issue with sodium bisulfite, I guess, is that we rely on PCR amplification with this type of technique. So then there are an, another whole host of limitations that arise as a result of amplifying your DNA. So polymerase is error prone so that you can cause mutations in your PCR products. You can also only amplify targets that you know if you can, you have to design primers for those targets. So if you're working with an unannotated genome, for example, or something like a virus, which is highly mutagenic, it can also be tricky. And they're sensitive to contamination. So if you, you'll amplify everything that's there. So if you have contaminating nucleic acids, you'll, you can also introduce errors in that way. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of steps involved as well that at which sort of an error can take place. It's not kind of like one seamless workflow. There's kind of many different aspects yeah. to it. And so how have sequencing technologies sort of been updated recently or how have they changed in the last kind of five years that have allowed for more advanced epigenetic studies? Five years, I guess. Or the, sequencing... I suppose the time is too much, <laughs> but the, the most recent updates. Yeah, I don't want to pin, pin you into sort of a pedant's trap. I guess things have been advancing so rapidly. Now we have big data sets. So originally you could only look at, you know, one gene or a few genes and it would take a long time to sequence an entire genome. Now we can do that rapidly. We can look at single cells and what's going on in single individual cells, which is just 
pretty insane when you think about it. We can also look now, I guess one of the advances that I am most excited about is long read sequencing. So traditional sequencing methods, you can only sequence reads of about 50 to 200 kilobases. So 200 bases long is sort of the max. But with long read sequencing, there's several techniques where you can essentially have potentially no upper limit on read length. And so this is advantageous for lots of different reasons. Some researchers have actually sequenced an entire chromosome from end to end using long read sequencing approaches. So it's very exciting space, I guess, to be in. And so when you're with, with those long read sequencing approaches, mm. and you say, so you mentioned people sequencing a whole chromosome from end to end, it, mm. would that be also you'd be able to detect the methylation across that entire chromosome exactly right yeah i guess so i should mention if you're sequencing native dna like with long sequencing approaches like nanopore you can simultaneously determine the sequence and also the dna methylation landscape on the same reads yeah fantastic so from end to end you can look at (laughs) dna methylation and it's pretty cool that is crazy and is that something you'd have to sort of like adjust your sequencing techniques to pick that up or literally just the same kind of workflow the same processes to get Oh, wow. You know, you'd have to do a very specific DNA extraction to try and extract the longest reads possible. Because when you are working with DNA, the simple act of pipetting your DNA will break it. So you have to be very careful. You have to use some specific tools, but it's not as hard as you would think. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess, why do we care about long reads? Like what's the difference between long reads and short read sequencing techniques? I think if you think about having 200 base pair reads. And if you think about how long a chromosome is, you have to get those 200 base pair reads and then put them all back together to understand what's going on in in a long piece of DNA, to understand what's going on in one whole gene, for example. But with long read sequencing, end to end, you don't have that same issue. And with that, so with the short read sequencing only taking up the small or doing a, a small section at a time, I suppose that must make it very difficult when you have sections of DNA that you're trying to study that cover a much longer region than that 200 bases. Um, Exactly. Yeah. It can also be difficult when you have repetitive regions. So you have your coding genome, which is, you know, not so repetitive, but you have this whole extra area of, of our genome and epigenome that is very, very repetitive, which we don't exactly know what is going on there so well because of the traditional techniques that rely on short read sequencing. It's difficult to put that region back together. Hmm. Okay. And so now we've got a sort of a good grounding of the techniques being used to explore it. How does sort of epigenetic variants and variations tie into infectious disease research? There are lots of ways that epigenetics can tie into infectious disease research. I guess there's really three main ways that I could explain. And I guess the first one is that when you're exposed to a pathogen, whether it be a virus or bacteria or anything, you have new information in your body. So you have usually the nucleic acids, you have, you have new DNA or RNA there. This information just being there can interact with the cells where it is and cause changes to the epigenome in those, those cells in particular. In addition, a pathogen can trigger an immune response. So this will recruit other cells or so immune cells and can in turn cause inflammation producing cytokines and flaring everything up. And that can have an additional effect on the epigenome of the cells at the site of that infection. I guess the third way is some viruses have their own 
epigenetic regulation. It's kind of crazy to think that a virus can have genes that can potentially be epigenetically activated or oppressed, whether that be after getting incorporated into the host genome or, for example, hepatitis B virus. It forms its own sort of like mini chromosome that is in the nucleus. It has little histones and can have DNA methylation that can potentially epigenetically repress or, or activate genes in particular. So I guess that's that's a couple of ways. <laughs> I'm sure other people would have many other ways that epigenetics ties in with infectious disease research. So that epigenetic aspect of the sort of viral infection, that's what can play into things like latency and stuff with infections, isn't it? Where you have yep. infections that you get the initial infection, it seems that your body's dealt with it, and then several can be several years later, it arises again. Yeah, exactly right. So there's a lot we don't know because it is tricky to study viral methylation or, or those sorts of sorts of fields, but it is emerging that in some viruses could be epigenetics that represses the virus internally in the virus. Other viruses that are incorporated into the host genome, it could be exactly in the same way. So DNA methylation silencing it and then activating it later. It's one way. Yeah, one way. And so how are you investigating this space? You mentioned HPV. Yeah. I guess my research very broadly surrounds how lifestyle can influence the epigenome. So what we eat, how we move, and in particular, what we're exposed to, and trying to understand how these factors affect the epigenome and how these changes can lead to or prevent disease development. And so one good example is my research in in the infectious disease space is on hepatitis B virus infections. So HPV, it infects the liver, so hepatocyte cells, which are in the liver. HPV infection can lead to liver cirrhosis and eventually cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma. It isn't really known if the virus just being there or if the chronic inflammation as a result of the virus is really the cause of hepatocellular carcinoma. And so that's something that I've been researching for the last few years is trying to understand if it's the virus or if it's the inflammation, which one is the chicken and which one is the egg. In addition, I've been working on developing new techniques to study viral methylation itself. So working with some very cool Kazline capture and long read sequencing techniques to try and capture entire HPV genomes and sequence them and look at single molecule methylation. And so I was able to show that in one patient, you can have different viral epigenotypes. So indicating that potentially in one hepatocyte, you have active virus, but in another one somewhere else or nearby in the same biopsy, you have inactive virus potentially by DNA methylation. Very cool. And do you have an idea or a thought at the moment as to why that might be, how that is happening within a patient in different cells? It could be, obviously this is a theory, it could just be that it could be due to viral replication. So it could be that they're at a different stage of replication, or it could be in some cells it's been silenced because of various reasons in other cells it's active. So really it's Difficult to postulate, but it could simply just be viral replication. And we're capturing that process by looking at the whole epigenomes. I suppose that's where the, the single cell aspect is really coming into its own in, that, in letting you make those discoveries or enabling you to make those discoveries. Yeah. Well, this is single molecule sequencing. So okay. rather than single cell, which is also very cool, would be cool to do, capturing the single cell and then looking at the single molecules within that cell. So the incorporation of single cell sequencing and single molecule would be just brilliant, but it has some limitations with 
with native DNA sequencing and quantities at this particular point in time, but I think it's coming. Okay, something to work on then. Yeah. So there's obviously also that link between HPV and cancer as well, that it can go on to, to stimulate it. What impacts, and this may be too broad a question actually, but what impact can epigenetic modifications have in cancer research? Oh, that's so, I mean, cancer is a disease of identity loss. So a cell is losing its identity and, and it's not functioning as it should. And so we can use epigenetics to study how that cell is kind of losing its identity. That's, I guess, one way how epigenetic research is really useful for understanding cancer. Yeah. So would you be exploring that avenue with the varying sort of epigenomes of the viruses and how they could sort of differentially lead to cancer in some patients, whereas in other patients, they, they don't go on to develop it with HPV, sorry. With hepatitis B virus, that is a very, very, very good example of what we would like to do. Tricky to do, but exactly right. So if a, in one patient, there is more methylation in the virus, is that less likely for that patient or that individual to develop hepatocellular carcinoma compared to someone who has less methylation on the virus, which is showing that it's potentially more active in terms of its viral transcription. That is one way where we could understand if it is the virus itself or if it's the recruitment of immune cells and the chronic inflammation that is really the reason for the development of hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's, it's still a long way to go to really be sure. So, so whether it's the variation in the virus or the patient, or maybe a, a combination of the two is. Yeah, like it, it could be the virus that's potentially priming a particular region that's causing some sort of epigenetic modifications that are making the hepatocyte sort of lose its identity. And that is sort of the, the egg <laughs> or the chicken. <laughs> yeah. So it's okay. a tricky question to answer. And so you mentioned some of the observations that you've been able to make. So detecting that variance in epigenetic control of, of different specific viruses in different aspects of in different areas that have pesticides. But what are some of the most exciting recent developments in our epigenetic understanding of diseases that that you have sort of observed either in your own work or across the field more broadly? Yeah, that's a really big question. <laughs> Most exciting. I guess I'm really excited about the potential for the reversibility of the epigenetic underpinnings of disease. So epigenetics is interesting because they can be potentially modifiable. So whether or not a disease that is epigenetically driven is, is certain is really unknown. And I guess I'm really excited by research. It's not so much in the disease space, but more in the aging space, because one of the best markers for age is by looking at DNA methylation. So we can understand a person's biological age better by looking at their DNA methylation status, comparing to their biological sort of age. And we, there's a little bit of research that's coming out recently that shows that we can potentially reverse epigenetic age by implicating lifestyle modifications like diet and exercise. And so I'm really excited about the prospect of looking at disease reversibility, like epigenetic underpinnings of disease that we thought were, were final, potentially lifestyle modifications can be very useful in reversing disease. I think that's exciting. Excellent. And what aspect of the tools currently <laughs> available, so the ones that, you, that you're working with to explore the epigenome, 
would you seek to improve to provide you with a, a greater insight into the epigenetics of disease? So if you could snap your fingers and tomorrow you're, you have the ability to do X, what would that be? To better understand disease, we need to understand how different epigenetic marks interfere with each other, how they interact. We can study DNA methylation as much as we want, but it doesn't always correlate with gene expression. And we think that that's because of the way the epigenome is organized in 3D. So 3D epigenome study, if I could snap my fingers, I would make the study of how epigenetic marks interact. I would make that cheap and I would make that easy. It is possible now there are several techniques like high c to study 3D genome organization, but it's just very expensive and complicated for the analysis. So I am very excited about what that will unlock in terms of understanding the epigenetic drivers of disease, as well as potentially the reversibility of those epigenetic drivers of disease. So sorry, I'm not sure if maybe I've, I've misunderstood, but when you say studying the 3D conformation, so obviously you've got all the histone changes as well, but are you talking about how perhaps two methylations that are, or methyl groups that were ended up close to each other in conformation, how they could interact? Oh, no, I, I okay. more meant how that is a very interesting area of study, of course, as well, but it was more how DNA methylation affects the modification of histones, how promoter methylation far away affects the expression of transcription factors further away and transcription factor binding sites and, and really how everything in the epigenome and all the different layers of the epigenome, how they all interact and how they come together to regulate transcription and to define the identity of those cells. Yeah. Okay, Brill. Well, Chloe, those are all of my questions. Do you have any last put of points to add or any sort of aspirations for the field? Oh, let's make everything cheaper. <laughs> I'm really excited about the new like bioinformatic advances that make everything easier. Like my hat goes off to the developers that are coding away in in coding dungeons that are just making everything more streamlined. I'm excited for things getting cheaper and cheaper. I guess another reason why I like Nanopore is because you can you can do a lot more with a lot less. And I think that increase in availability and accessibility is really going to drive the future of epigenetics. Yeah, I think that's yeah two very common cries in, in research is being able to spend all of your sort of research funding on as many things as possible, as opposed to one very good thing, but it costs the world. And then also being able to, yeah, having those streamlined processes, as you said, so that you've got time to be thinking about the issues and planning things as opposed to just physically carrying out massive sort of data trawls or going through and trying to find associations. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Chloe. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Well, if you have enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like them, you can check out the podcast section of our website over on www.biotechniques.com or follow at CyTristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>